With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Well, it's October. We got October baseball, and we got uh, all kinds of fun October baseball related things to be thinking about, worrying about, and talking about, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, <laughs> And for the minor leagues, all those guys get to do the same thing. They get to watch October baseball, too. Yeah, I, I like how you put that, that we all have to worry about postseason baseball. It's like one of the most exciting things ever. And it's also the most like, uh, I don't know, sitting on a razor's edge. Yeah, it's, it's like a- it's um, we I do uh, uh, another podcast, as some may be aware, and talked with uh, Arizona Diamondbacks pre and postgame host Mike Farron the other day. And he said it's a combination excitement, anxiety. And he coined the phrase anxiety, which I think is That's very accurate. That's or very ang- good. especially excitement, maybe. But yeah, yeah, especially now when we're recording this, you know, we're, we record these on Wednesday. So the NL wildcard game between the D-backs and the Rockies hasn't happened yet. So we still have that to look forward to two and a half or, hours away. Yeah. Or in some people's case, worry about, I guess, to be um, terrified or, of. Yeah. Or like last night's game between the Yankees and the Twins, which we do know what happened. The Yankees won. Uh you know, just the the idea that so much is packed into every pitch in these one game scenarios, which I you know we can always have that discussion another time. We don't have to do it now, but that's what I kind of like about the wild card games. You know, if you didn't win your division, you shouldn't necessarily be put on these equal levels. And what we get instead is a playing game that is some of the most exciting baseball I think of the year. Yeah. Uh, in these two games, even when it's you know, even the later innings last night, you know, they were blow up. It was a little bit of a blow up by that point. And, um, you know, when you're going to the, the back end of the Yankees bullpen, you feel like you have it sewed up. But you don't know. You just don't know. Uh, and and I love that part of the game. Oh, man, it is. Uh, I'll say this. It's much less stressful when you feel completely neutral in those games. But if you were a Yankees fan last night in the top of the first that, oh my god like what on earth happened and then the bottom of the first you're on top of the world and then everything's great yeah. it's like the amount, the it amount is, of it's, the it's game seven in one day it's, yeah right right oh man not not, not easy gross. not yeah. easy um so hey with that welcome in to the latest edition of the show before the show podcast episode number 130 from milb.com i am tyler mon he is sam dykstra both of us in postseason cities i'm in denver colorado sam in new york city a team that's already moving on the new york yankees and uh we will uh endeavor to bring you the latest and greatest news from minor league baseball season over arizona fall league on deck coming up here uh in just a week the arizona fall league will get rolling in uh in full speed and that's insane that we're already at AFL time of the year. But, um, you know, sometimes we see – I don't think this is going to be the case in 2017, but my fondest AFL memory maybe ever will be I flew into Phoenix last year on the night in which Kyle Schwarber made his debut coming off of the ACL injury last season. Um, debuted last year for the Mesa Solar Sox on the same night that the Cubs clinched the National League pennant. Uh, got to to Mesa to Sloan Park just in time to get in on his post game media scrum. 
Cubs are celebrating. He's talking about maybe being there for the World Series. Then he's there for the World Series, making a big impact. I mean, it's it's crazy how even when the minor league season is over, so many things still go hand in hand. So don't don't close the book on your focus on the minor league season just yet because the AFL is is right with us here coming up in a few days. Yeah, that might have been the craziest rehab assignment so that I weird. can remember since the time Andy Pettit uh, rehabbed with Trenton, I think, in the yeah. Eastern League playoffs. They had which... somebody else uh, that same – they started back-to-back big league rehabbers, I remember, in that Eastern League playoff series. And it was somebody else random. It was like Andy Pettit and like Carl Pavano or somebody weird. That sounds about right. I, I can't exactly remember, but I still remember. Like It was just so crazy, the, all these kids – not kids, they're double-A players and – you know, a good amount of them are in their mid twenties or older, but um, trying to compete for a double A ch- championship and oh yeah, go against this. Uh, By the way, here's a ring. Guys, one yeah, won multiple World Series. <laughs> go go get them, guys. Should be fun. Um, so it's uh, it's certainly a fun time of year for the minor leagues as well as for the big leagues. And uh, let's dive in. Three strikes on this week's edition of the show before the show, which wherever you found us, thanks for tuning in on iTunes, the Stitcher app, Google Play. You can find us at milb.com/podcast. Wherever you found us, give us a rating and a review and a subscription if you would be so kind coming up here in just a little bit second ranked prospect in the Baltimore Orioles organization Austin Hayes will join the show and uh, Austin Hayes is going to be one of the guys who contends for a whole lot of postseason awards and we've got ours coming up here uh, in just a little while at MILB.com the best in minor league baseball yearly or the Milby awards as we call them and that is three strikes for this week's episode Sam we got a whole bunch of categories for this season what three provided you the most difficult choices for who you thought the winner should be yeah so first off I didn't know Milby was actually an acronym yeah did you just did you say that like do you do you I know that, that. Or, I knew that oh minor I always just thought yearly. it was like uh, I just thought it was our thing. You thought like, it was like Grammy, the, Emmy, right? Well, right. Well, Which, that, I thought fair. it was tacked on a Y to be cool, but fair. Minor league baseball yearly. I like it. I like it. Um, so yeah. So we're not going to do this whole big rundown of every single category. I remember we did that last year. That can kind of drag. Lord knows, you know, you go to milb.com slash milby. You will be able to find every category. You can vote yourself. Uh, you know, this this will run for, I think, two weeks, uh, the voting period. So there's a staff pick. We all we're here at the MILB.com staff. Um, we get to pick our winners for each category and then we write features on them. But there's also a fan vote and uh, you all get to have your say on who wins Milby's in the, the following different categories. Uh, top starting pitchers, top offensive player, top top relief pitcher, uh, breakout prospect of the year, game of the year, best individual performance, best team promotion of the year, photo of the year, and best farm system. Um, so out of, out of those ones, um, some of them are, are a little more clean cut than others. And I, if you've been listening to the podcast at all this year, you probably know which, which of those is which. Um, but for me, I think the three toughest to pick, uh, I'll start with best team. Um, because A, there are just so many great teams, but also teams are so fluid in a way that, you know, players obviously are, they're moving to different levels and all that kind of stuff, but there's so many players that get added to a roster over the year, how we kind of define a team over a full minor league season uh, can be difficult, but particularly this year, looking at the candidates, uh, you know, you have your double A Trenton Thunder, uh, New York Yankees affiliate had the most wins among full season teams. They went 92 and 48 Um, West Michigan Whitecaps. They actually had a higher winning percentage at 669, they went 91 and 45. They won both both of the halves uh, of their Midwest League division. 
They had the best Midwest League record by 13 games. That makes it especially tough. Uh, AAA Memphis Redbirds, uh, they went 91-50, and 50, um, which is really good considering how much movement they had this year. Um, they ended up winning a PCL championship. Those other two teams I just mentioned didn't technically win their league championships, so take that with a grain of salt if, if you want. Uh, the Memphis Redbirds, you might remember, I think were the first team to clinch a second half title, even though, or a first team to clinch a division title in the second half. Uh, the PCL obviously doesn't have half titles like some of the other leagues. They ended up winning their division by 22 games, which is rather astounding. Um, but if you're going to mention Memphis, you also have to mention Durham, uh, who went 86 and 56. Uh, they won an IL title. They also beat Memphis in that AAA national championship game. Uh, they had the second best record in the IL by only half a game. Like I said, they won those, not only their league title, but also their level title. Uh, trying to parse all these different ones can be especially difficult in a very good way. All of these teams have you know, legitimate claims. Uh, it's whether you measure it by winning percentage or whether you measure it by overall wins or whether they're holding up a trophy at the end of the year. Uh, that makes it especially difficult. And the other two categories I always kind of have a difficult time picking at the end of the year are game and individual performance. Again, because there's just so much that goes into it. Um, you know, games, you know, we, we've got Tim Tebow homering in his first at-bat. Uh, why do we have that in game instead of individual performance? Just because that was as a moment, as an event. You know, so many people were tuned into that one uh, when he started the year, you know, at, at Class A Columbia. What was he going to do? And the fact that he homered in his first at-bat. Uh, I know it sent the office wild. It certainly sent the, the internet wild. Um, that's something we have to remember uh, by the end of the year. But you also I'll bring up Trenton again. You know, they had a playoff no-hitter uh, led by Justice Sheffield. Um, there was a game between Albuquerque and Fresno this year that was 15-14, to 14, in which Tyler White had six RBIs, Ryan McMahon had seven. Uh, Christian Walker had a cycle and a, and a comeback that led to a AAA Reno 11-10 to 10 win. That was really nuts. Uh, AAA Sacramento had 13 runs in one inning. Uh, Midland, you know, won its fourth straight Texas League title. We have their uh, championship clinching game in there as well. Uh, one of my favorites of the year, Dalton Varsho uh, for Hillsborough, homered not only before the eclipse in K Salem Kaiser, but also after the eclipse delay, uh, which was the first ever eclipse delay in baseball, as you'll recall. Uh, the GCL Nationals threw back to back no hitters. I think you may have written that story, Tyler. I did. Uh, uh, on a Sunday in a double header, which is just nuts. So they're, you know, not only did they do a back to back games, they did it in the same day. Um, so trying to parse all of this, uh, we have a pair of 21 inning games as well. Um, how do you kind of weigh and measure this is always interesting. You know, I had to make my picks. That was an incredibly difficult category. Individual performance, the same kind of thing. You know, we had three perfect games in that one. Uh, Tyler Molly, Dominic Mazza, and Connor Gray all through perfect games. So how do you measure perfection? That's difficult for me. You know, maybe the kicker is how many... Who had more strikeouts? Uh, you know that could happen. Uh, Tyro Estrada he cycled in the the playoffs as well for the Trenton Thunder. That's really interesting. Um, you know we have DJ Peters who homered twice off of Madison Baumgartner uh, during Baumgartner's rehab start for San Jose. PJ DJ Peters was playing for R Rancho Cucamonga. That's just a standout individual performance. You know in my head just because we were talking about that for weeks afterwards. Um, you know, not only is it a two homer game, it's a two homer game off one of the most dominant, dominant pitchers in Major League Baseball. And he's doing it at Class A advance, which is technically three rungs down the ladder, uh, which was really crazy. Uh, Dustin Fowler, before he got moved to the A's, 
completed his own cycle with a walk-off home run, uh, which is really nuts. So again, you know, trying to get this list down to 10 was really difficult. Then trying to vote for just one is incredibly difficult. Um, so, you know, some of these other categories, I think you're going to find it pretty easy to pick, you know, looking at starting pitcher, we, I'd point you in the direction of our interviewer or interviewee last week, uh, a offensive player. There's maybe like three or four that are really in the category there, including our interviewee this week in Austin Hayes, who led minor league baseball in total bases. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean every category is the easiest. And I think those three team game and individual performance or something you're going to have to take a long hard look at and try to figure out what exactly you prioritize as your as a fan voting in this contest i mean i think the overarching lesson is that there's not really an easy category to vote for for any of these um i do think you know team is always difficult because a team has a different identity in april versus what it is in may versus what it is in june like sam said um i think system is also really difficult to evaluate because the the question always comes down to what makes a good system? Is it you graduated these guys in the major leagues? Is it these guys developed best in the minor leagues from this low level to this upper level of the minor leagues? Is it top-end talent versus a consistent base of talent? I mean, are you looking at a, a system like the White Sox or the Braves, or are you looking at a system like the Brewers that has a lot of good talent, maybe doesn't have the same upper echelon guys? So that one is always really difficult to quantify as well, but... Um, that's what makes it fun. That's what makes the Milbys entertaining and makes them one of our most read stories um, every year. And uh, we get, there's a lot of good contenders in every category this year. Um, also, I love voting in um, photo of the year, which we did not have <laughs> because we don't write a story about it. So we didn't have it in our staff voting, but I love the photo of the year vote. Yeah, the, the photo of the year vote, we always leave up to the fans. That and the videos. Um, yeah, that's completely on you guys. We don't have a say in that, All which I think is you. more fun. Yeah, to leave that stuff up to you guys. Actually, I, I want to touch quickly on the farm system because I'm glad you brought that up. We we changed it a little bit this year uh, in terms of who it, what we consider a good farm system. We, the what we used to do it as is just strictly based on uh, team performance and you know which teams had the highest percentage of you know of wins during the season across all their affiliates and who had most playoff teams, that kind of stuff. Uh, we tweaked it a little bit this year. You're definitely going to find some, some farm systems that had really good years on that front. Uh, but we also included some of the more prominent, you know, uh, prospect lace systems as well, who didn't necessarily have great years collectively as teams. So like the Atlanta Braves are in there despite, despite the fact that as a system, they only had a 450 winning percentage. Uh, the Chicago White Sox are in there again for the same reason. You know, they have six top 100 prospects right now. Uh, collectively, they had a 442 winning percentage, but any list of best farm systems would feel somewhat incomplete without at least the Braves and the White Sox. So we switched it up a little bit this year. For those of you who've been following Milby's closely over the last few years, you might notice that. Um, but I think that's for the better, and, and that def definitely makes it a deeper category than maybe it was in years past. So that is strike one for this week's episode. Strike two uh, comes to us from Toolshed this week. Sam had a great column as we are now – almost with a fully decided eight-team picture in the Major League postseason of how all of these teams, 10 in total, uh, and actually some included teams on this list that were not in the final Major League Baseball playoff field because this tool shed column came out the final week of the regular season in the big leagues, a couple of teams that were eliminated uh, but went down to the wire trying to make it into the playoffs. How these teams were built via 
their farm systems, um, what it meant for a lot of these organizations, draft picks, international signees, prospects acquired in trades, and how those guys factored into what has turned into playoff seasons for 10 teams across the big leagues. The Washington Nationals, the leading war total among players who joined the organization via the Major League Baseball first-year player draft, 23 wins above replacement. Colorado Rockies, 20.1. Those the only two teams in which homegrown, drafted, and developed players accounted for 20 or more wins above replacement. But a lot of these teams, the Milwaukee Brewers, oddly enough, who were in the race up until the final day of the season – they were the last of this group in terms of players on the roster who had joined that organization via the draft and were contributing in a big way to the war total among those guys. But the Brewers are an organization that brought in a ton of talent via trades that has really contributed to their success at the major league level. So Sam, kind of give us a rundown of this because there's so many different ways to build an organization, but we very rarely now see the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox of the early 2000s of teams that are just going and throwing out nine figures worth of money at guys in order to try to build themselves into World Series contenders. Yeah, and I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, for those of you who want to go back and look at the story, I, I note it in there. Um, all these war totals that we're going to be discussing here um, were through last Wednesday, so they're a little bit outdated. Obviously, they're you know Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, some of these guys could tack on a little bit more. Um, and also, this is everybody on the active roster at that point. So everybody who had been called up in September – um, you know, even if they added 0.2 war in September, that still gets counted because obviously that had an impact. And for some of these teams, they really needed that impact in September. Uh, some other outlets have done similar stories. Um, they've usually used playoff rosters. Obviously, those weren't available to me uh, when we first ran this story. Um, both are both versions of doing it are equally good, um, equally interesting. Um, but kind of. What stuck out to me were maybe some of the surprises you brought up the Brewers. That was certainly a surprise um, just because I, you know, we think of their developmental system right now as being one of the best in baseball. Uh, but the fact that they have had, you know, like you said, I think it was only 4.2 war at that point was generated um, by draft picks um, of which there are only five. There were only five draft picks on the Milwaukee Brewers uh, active roster last week. That was surprising. Um, but at the top of that that table were, were the Washington Nationals, uh, who have eight drafted players on the, the active roster at the end of the season, who had generated 23 war, which on average is like three war, which uh, three war is a good player. That's a good, solid starter. Um, you know, obviously they had been helped by the fact that they had Steven Strasburg, Bryce Harper and Anthony Rendon, who were all top six picks in 2009, 2010, 2011. Uh, we were always wondering, you know, would, would this stretch work out for the Nats? Uh, obviously got them Strasburg, who was one of the most impressive college pitchers in recent memory. Got them Bryce Harper, who's probably the most impressive uh, uh, high school position player in recent memory. And then Rendon was uh, well thought about or well thought of. Uh, when he was coming out of the draft out of college, all three hit extremely well this year uh, by hit. I mean, came good extremely well this year. Uh, Strasburg was a five win player. Harper, even when he got injured, was a five win player. Rendon was uh, uh, probably their MVP uh, as of last Wednesday. He had a six point seven more. He'll be in that kind of discussion. Um, you know, probably going to be crowded out by the likes of Giancarlo Stanton, Nolan Arenado, Paul Goldschmidt, uh, Joey Votto, all that kind of stuff. But he definitely was playing to the caliber of an all-star level. Um, all three of those guys, you know, you total them up. All three came through the draft. They're all they're all Washington Nationals uh, products. 
and that certainly helped them this year. That that cornerstone, you know, or the, those guys have are forming the cornerstone of that system, uh, and that's you know that just underlies how important it is to draft well. Um, but not only that, you know, take a step down from them is the Colorado Rockies, and, and Tyler, I want you to touch on this a little bit more. Um, but the the Rockies had twelve players on their active roster that were draft picks that were original Colorado draft picks. And that allowed them to rank second in this list at 20.1 war. Uh, you know, the Rockies need to draft pitching. They're, they're not going to bring guys in through free agency and say, Hey, want to come here for four years and watch your ERA go extremely North and, you know, try to make yourself a value here. That that's going to be a very difficult sell. Obviously they can do it, but it's, it can be tough. Um, so they need to draft pitching. That's how you end up with John Gray, um, you know, being their, their best pitcher. Um, you know, you look down the line, I think Kyle Freeland, all that, all those guys uh, are very impressive drafted pitchers uh, for Colorado. And, and from your view, Tyler, does it feel like they, this is just kind of like a depth thing that they, they just drafted well, or have they even drafted well at the top? No, I think, um, you know, the, the biggest difference is they haven't missed on those top picks. Uh, the, the Rockies for a long time, were an organization that bet high on their first and second round draft picks and whiffed pretty impressively on a lot of them. You know, guys like Casey Weathers and Ian Stewart and Christian Friedrich come to mind, just guys who were not high-end major league talent um, in some cases didn't make the big leagues in other cases barely cracked the big leagues um, but what they've been able to do under Jeff Breidich and Zach Wilson in recent years Breidich the former farm director is now the general manager Zach Wilson the current farm director Chris Forbes the manager of player development they have been able to get big high-end talent early on John Gray Brendan Rogers Riley Pint to name a few over the last few years and with the the talent that they've had already in the system, they've brought those guys along and graduated them and made them into effective major leaguers. That didn't happen for a long time. Um, but, you know, Tyler Anderson and Trevor Story were a couple of first-round picks that made it to the big leagues and have had tremendous impacts. Um, and the Rockies, for so long, just could not count on the guys that they got in the highest selections of the draft ending up being major league role players. But on top of that, I think the depth thing definitely comes into play because – you get contributions from guys that you've acquired, um, you know, in the later rounds of the draft or even in trade acquisitions. People for a long time thought Herman Marquez was really just a throw in in the deal that brought Jake McGee to Colorado uh, and sent Corey Dickerson to Tampa Bay. Herman Marquez came up in late April, did not miss a turn through the rotation the entire year. He's been a solidifying force in the starting rotation for them. Um, so it's been a very well-rounded approach to development in addition to drafting strong. Um, but like you said, they need to do that. And there are other teams in this conversation that likewise need to do that. The Minnesota Twins are one of those teams. The Arizona Diamondbacks are one of those teams. The Brewers are one of those teams. The Rockies can't afford – I saw it put this way by Paul Swite and a fan graph today. The Rockies cannot afford to spend their way out of trouble. And you – You've got that luxury if you're the Nationals, if you're the Yankees, if you're the Red Sox, if you're the Dodgers. You don't have that if you're one of these smaller market teams. So drafting and development is crucial, and when you whiff on it, it looms so much larger because you can't supplement – 
an already shaky roster with money. You have to have your talent coming in its largest surge from that drafting and developing core. And the Rockies have been able to do that. The D-backs have been able to do that. Um, You know, the Twins, obviously, the Astros, we talked for so long about how stacked that system was. And the team who's maybe done it better than all those teams over the last several years, the Chicago Cubs with the talent that they've graduated. So um, it is fun to see baseball in this light because 10, 15 years ago, It was frustrating if you were a fan of a a mid to small market team and you knew your best guys were eventually just going to be scooped up by the Red Sox or the Yankees for 80 plus million dollars, whatever it was. Nowadays, even those organizations, you look at what the Yankees have built, what the Red Sox have built, they built around really good homegrown talent. And I think that's fun because you watch organizations implement different philosophies, try to get their talent to the major leagues in different ways. And that's cool. It's not just, here's a blank check. Let's go buy the best team we can. I think it's a lot more fun watching the major league baseball of 2017 versus of 2002. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, just the outlets that we have us included, you know, all the other ones out there um, to see these guys go from, you know, draft picks to, to fully form, um, you know, major league contributors is, is a lot more fun than it maybe it, it was when it, you know you were following uh, sporting news box scores um, back in the day. I, I always think back to that line in Durham Bull or Durham Bull Bull Durham, where nobody knew uh, that he had set the minor league record for home runs. Right. Like, imagine that happening now. Like, if we all just woke up one day, it was like, oh, wait a minute, I just got to call that Mike Hessman. What Mike Hessman? <laughs> yeah. It, it's such a different world now than it used to be. Um, one thing to just quickly touch on, and if we're talking about player development, um, that stood out to me in this story as well. Uh, you'll note that the war for international signees was not necessarily as high as these other uh, two categories. Uh, the Yankees were the only one to get double-digit war out of amateur international signees. Um, but what I thought was really interesting was the fact that you only need a couple of those guys to hit uh, you know, to become like I said, fully fledged uh, contributors um, for that market to really work. You know, the Yankees are top there, but they only have four international uh, players that they originally signed on their active roster last week. Two of them are dominating in terms of the war category uh, in Luis Severino and Gary Sanchez. Um, You know, I think they had something like 10.6 war collectively out of those four prospects, but 10.2 of that came between Severino and Sanchez themselves. Uh, Number two was the Indians at 8.3. A lot of that coming from Jose Ramirez and the Astros at number three was 7.8. The vast majority of that coming from Jose Altuve. Um, So when we look at this market, you know, it's not necessarily, okay, what is, what have they gotten in terms of depth from this signing period? Obviously depth, depth is always good. Um, but you know, when teams are looking to sign guys in the international market, they only need a couple of them to become fully fledged superstars for the entire signing period to become a success or the entire five year period of signing periods to become a success. Um, so that, that really stood out to me in terms of how these teams are constructed. But, uh, you know, we'll I'll have to look at this going into next year to see if that, that narrative changes at all or how teams kind of deal with their homegrown talent. Um, you know, what are, what are the trends with this? We'll have to keep an eye on this going forward. Strike three this week, Sam. We received some bombshell news on Monday with the development that Atlanta Braves general manager John Coppolella would resign from his post, which he did, step down from that role with the Braves. So did his special assistant, Gordon Blakely, under investigation about the 
practices on the international market that the Atlanta Braves were employing. Um, there is a lot of similarity in this situation between this one and what the Boston Red Sox were hammered for with penalties a couple of years ago. And to try to break this down in its most simplistic terms, it all obviously comes down to money. That's the answer to 99 out of 100 questions in anything in the world. But with the way international money is now restricted, there is some discussion, there is some rumor that the Braves were bundling packages of signing bonuses to certain players and guys who went through the same trainer or Buscone as they're known in, in the Dominican Republic and much of the Latin American baseball community, they would sign multiple players from the same trainer and to overpay a more wanted prospect, they would give a lesser prospect more money, funnel that money through that player and that trainer and get it to the better prospect to overspend on a bonus outside of the restricted cap on that player. Hopefully that makes sense the way I just explained that. But the Braves right now are being investigated for that, among other things. John Coppolella has stepped down. Gordon Blakely has resigned as well. But this could be extremely heavy hitting in that system. The Braves system, we just talked about it a minute ago, one of the best already in minor league baseball, but there are guys who are tied up in this organization, in this investigation now, who may well find themselves not members of the Atlanta Braves organization anymore. Kevin Maiton is the one who has surfaced. That name has come up a lot. He is the fifth-ranked prospect in the organization and was signed uh, in July of 2016. The Braves paid $4.25 million to sign him, and that was the official number. Um, but if it's discovered that this stuff has been going on, there looms the potential that Kevin Maiton will be granted free agency as punishment for the practices in that international department by the Braves. But there's a ton going on. And the reason why this stems uh, from this investigation, why this seems to have so much more of an impact is it all seems to have come from internally. And the fantastic Jeff Passan at Yahoo Sports had a really, really interesting column on this on Monday. And the money quote came at the end of that story and apparently the infighting and the self-consumption inside the Braves front office has been going on for a while uh, and it came to a point where some of these things may have been run up the chain to Major League Baseball Park Avenue from inside the organization but this was the money quote quote this place is totally effed up and the person did not say effed I just hope when it blows up, it doesn't take all of us down. And Jeff Passan attributed that quote to one high-ranking Braves employee. So there's a lot going on right now in Atlanta. Yeah, I, I don't know if you mentioned this too. There's also rumors that maybe they had approached a player or come to an agreement with a player when he was 14. Right. Um, which, which obviously international players are not allowed to sign until they're 16. Um, and even and, at 15, it's sort of an unspoken thing. It's against the rules. It is an illicit activity. But at 15, Major League organizations, a lot of times, will have handshake agreements with players, that type of stuff. Major League Baseball has really tried to crack down on that because there's a lot of predatory stuff that goes on with young players and the trainers who are trying to lock them into deals so the trainers can get money. There's a lot of kind of shady stuff that goes on. But 14, I mean, that's where you're already pushing the limits and you're already going against the rules at 15. 15 like some organizations do there man is this is some pretty brazen stuff that's been brought up there was also discussion of and the the Braves attempted to pass this off as it being a joke but 
Drew Waters, who was a second-round pick this year, the Braves are alleged to have offered him under-the-table benefits to sign for less money. Um, he wanted $1.675 million. That was the slot value for his pick. And apparently, according to one of these allegations, uh, John Coppolella offered him $1.5 million and a car to bridge the difference between $1.5 million and the slot value. So there's a lot a lot of this stuff. And the other thing that was really interesting, Jeff Passan tweeted, uh, John Coppola was not well-liked among his his peers. Well-loathed would be more accurate. And there was a lot of schadenfreude going around in Major League Baseball on the day this happened. So maybe this has been something that people have been aware of and haven't been able to prove for a while. But the fact that it's coming from internal sources and how that seems to have gotten it to Major League Baseball is fascinating. Yeah, we we should also kind of highlight just that this is all kind of alleged at right. this point. You know, still part of an ongoing investigation. Very, right. Yeah, there might not come anything of this other than the fact that Coppola is now no longer a part of the Braves organization. Whether he'll ever get a job in baseball again is is going to be an interesting thing to follow um, because of what Tyler mentioned in terms of the fact that he doesn't seem to have many friends in baseball, at least in other organizations. And then uh, you throw all these allegations on top of that, that led to him leaving Atlanta uh, is, is interesting. Um, one thing to also throw out about my from this passing story. Um, there's also, you know, worry that he had been in a uh, two bedroom apartment in Florida with another player that the Braves eventually signed. Um, he was there before the Braves signed him. Um, and the fact that he was there with another player may hint at the fact that the Braves had gotten that apartment for him, which is obviously uh, not proper conduct under the CBA. Um, again, that's a, a, something that's alleged. If it's not proven to be true, um, then, you know, my time might stay. I think Ken Rosenthal had said as of right now, the the uh, investigation hasn't found anything wrong with the signing of Maiton. Um, but that would be very interesting for our purposes if he is declared a free agent. Uh, my understanding, uh, Tyler brought up the, the Red Sox scandal of a couple of years ago. Uh, they had a pair of prospects who turned into free agents um, be because of their own bundling issues in the Latin market. Uh, so if Maiton were to become a free agent, he would still fall under international signing rules. Uh, this would not be a full-fledged free agent, which would obviously, A, be more fun for Kevin Maiton. Uh, he would have a lot more money at his disposal, uh, but also more fun for us just to see what a player his age and of his caliber, uh, you know, this is a top 100 prospect. Everybody kind of agrees on that, um, what he would get on the open market. would love to know that. But uh, the way it looks is he would have to fall under international signing rules. So a lot of these teams have already – gone through their international budgets for the 2017-2018 signing period, um, but they would be docked $300,000. Uh, that's how it worked with the Red Sox prospects. Um, so the cap hit would be whatever Maiton signs for, minus $300,000. Uh, know, that, that would be fascinating what that all is going to mean for him. Um, hopefully it doesn't come to that. I, I will say that you know, I, I don't want you know Kevin Maiton to be lifted out of the organization, and I also don't want to – to find out that all the Braves broke all these rules to sign him. I would rather everything be above board and him to stay where he is and with the team he, he originally picked. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll be following this uh, pretty closely going into the, into the off season. And like I said, if he, if he is declared a free agent, well then the off season gets even more interesting from our perspective.
certainly uh, a very deep story that we'll keep an eye on, and that'll wrap up three strikes for this week's edition of the show before the show. Um, before we wrap up this segment, we do have uh, one heartbreaking note that we need to get to. The 22-year-old sister of Chicago White Sox prospect Michael Duarte, Christiana Duarte, was one of those killed in Las Vegas on Sunday. Um, she was missing through a large part of Monday. Michael and his family uh, were tweeting out pictures and asking people to call with information. Uh, his sister, who went by Chrissy, she had just taken a job at the Los Angeles Kings. The Kings, likewise, trying to find her. Uh, the hope was that maybe she was just in a hospital somewhere and people hadn't been able to locate her yet. Um, she was not. She was one of those killed. Uh, Michael's girlfriend was also at that concert, Ariel Romero. She was shot in the face, suffered a fractured jaw, and is reportedly in stable condition with her injuries. Uh, there is a GoFundMe page that has been started for the Duarte family and the Romero family, which you can find. Um, I know the the White Sox, a few of their affiliate sites um, had been tweeting that out as well, but obviously our thoughts very much with Michael's family, um, as well as with the families of everyone else involved on, uh, on Sunday in Las Vegas. Michael was uh, a draft selection in this past June's draft out of UC Irvine. He went in the 23rd round, um, just played in a couple of games for uh, rookie-level Great Falls in the Pioneer League, but um, um, something that we you never think you're gonna have to talk about or write about or think about um, and then it, it hits home with people who are you know involved in the same family in which you're involved and uh, another minor leaguer Bubba Derby a prospect in the Milwaukee Brewers organization was also in attendance at that concert thankfully he was okay um, and was able to to run to safety but um, just crushing man Monday seeing that on on Michael's Twitter account just as heartbreaking as anything you could you could have seen this week yeah yeah it I, I think you touched on it pretty well there um you know this this type of tragedy hits us all regardless of whether we know anybody or not um but when you do know somebody involved or it's somebody you know even in a, in our silly circle that is minor league baseball or just baseball in general uh it, it hits home all the more um you know it and that shouldn't be just the case because you know she worked for a hockey team or her brother was a baseball player or anything like that. Um, you know, whenever a tragedy like this happens, we tend to focus on, on, you know, who perpetrated it, who, who, who was the, you know, the shooter and all that kind of stuff. And we get to learn a lot about them, but please look towards the victims and look, especially look towards those who, who were there to help. Uh, lots of stories like that this week of people who were helping others and some who gave their lives to do so. Let's learn as much about them and, and honor them as best we can. Um, and, you know, honor their memories as best we can by making the world better and, and trying to find the stories about them and, and taking them with us forward. So, uh, you know, our thoughts, as always, uh, you know, are, are with the victims in this and hopefully we can um, take what happened and make the world a better place and, and not just turn, you know, our thoughts, but turn them into actions. There is a GoFundMe page also set up by the Clark County Commission, um, which will handle the, the vast majority of support for victims' families, which you can find at GoFundMe. It's the Las Vegas Victims Fund. Uh, it is nearly at $9 million of its $10 million goal. That was just announced, I believe, on Tuesday, and uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. It's almost met that goal, um, but please, if you are in a position, donate. Um, donate to Puerto Rico. Donate to Mexico. Do what you can to help out. Do what you can to 
make the world a little bit better place. We've got a lot of baseball family in Puerto Rico and in Mexico that are hurting right now and in Florida and Texas as well. Um, it has not been an easy few weeks around the world. So uh, if you're tuned in and you, you feel the urge to do something to help, please do so. And you can find uh, where to do all of that online and elsewhere. And um, hopefully we can all do something to make somebody else smile today. But um, our thoughts, obviously, with the families of, of Michael Duarte and, and everybody else. And uh, that'll do it for our opening segment on this week's edition of the show before the show. Uh, we will head to the Baltimore Orioles organization next, and we will catch up with a guy who put his name at the forefront of a whole lot of discussion about that system, Austin Hayes, the outfielder out of Jacksonville University, who really put himself on the map with a breakout 2017, and that was following a breakout 2016, in which he went to the O's in that year's draft. We'll catch up with Austin about his 2017 campaign, his Major League debut, and what lies ahead for his offseason coming up next. Our guest this week on the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show as we uh, head into the the full-on Minor League offseason is Baltimore Orioles prospect Austin Hayes, who joins us after yet another terrific season, two times through in the major in the minor leagues, uh, since being selected in the third round of the Major League Baseball first-year player draft in 2016. Two great seasons. Austin, coming off your first full year, how is the the start to the offseason treating you so far? Oh, it's great. Yeah. Um... The drive home wasn't wasn't too good, but uh, I'm glad to be off my feet and just sitting around relaxing, enjoying all my family and company. Well, and being a uh, a guy who is uh, a Florida product, this has been a tumultuous last few weeks, few months. How off the field? I mean, how is everything family wise? Your hometown, everybody that you know. Uh, what have the last few weeks been like for you? It's been kind of rough all over the place. It seems, feels like with weather, natural disasters, and everything. Yeah, I mean, we were kind of blessed in, in a really hard time. No one had any serious injuries or they had um, – no one had any bad damages to their house or anything like that. So everybody came away okay. Um, just just a little bit of flooding, but nothing nearly as bad as what it could have been. Well, that's uh, the best possible outcome that you could hope for. And um, now getting a chance to get into the offseason, like you said, you have a bit of an opportunity to relax. And this is now two seasons, one full season through in minor league ball since uh, going in the third round of 2016. But this year, I mean, if you can have a breakout first full pro season, this was it. Two levels, Class A advance with Frederick, Double A with Bowie, uh, and then your major league debut. Did you ever imagine coming out of school just over a year later you could be in the big leagues for 20 games? No, I wouldn't have. Uh, I wouldn't have said it was going to happen that fast. So take us through the the jump in levels. I mean, you go to get started at Frederick, uh, tough level, tough league, but you dominate there. Three twenty eight, three sixty four, five ninety two. Your slash line. Then you jump up to Bowie. You get a little bit better there to make an in season jump. And then all of a sudden, get told you're going to the major leagues. What were the emotions of that climb like over the summer? Um. There's a lot of happiness, um, you know, just going from level to level and getting to experience the, the difference in the competition, even just the difference in the age group of most of the guys that I'm around. Um, but, I mean, it was a lot of smiles, a lot of smiles, man. It just gave me a lot of confidence knowing that the Orioles believed in me enough to, to move me up that, that quick. And, um, you know, I feel like I did my part and I just gave my all every day and, once again, they trusted me enough to, to call me up, and, and I got to experience that this year, too. So it was, it was unbelievable. Well, even going back to what Tyler was talking about in terms of Frederick and Bowie, what stood out to me about your season was just how 
incredibly consistent you were. You hit 328 at Frederick. You hit 330 at Bowie. Uh, Bowie. You hit 16 homers at Frederick, 16 at Bowie. You had an OPS of 956 at Frederick, an OPS of 960 at Bowie. What allowed you to be so consistent this year, no matter you know the competition you were facing specifically in the minors? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think it was my routines that I had developed from coming out of college. I had a good foundation and a base for what I wanted to do on a daily basis. Get my body feeling right. Get my swing feeling the same. And then um, actually being able to experience playing every single day this year um, with no injuries or anything like that. Um, being able to to get into those feelings was a lot easier than it was in college or even in short season last year because I went through a wrist injury that had me out for six weeks. So, I mean, the biggest part of it for me, I feel like, was just playing every single day. Um, it, it was easier to stay in those grooves once I, once I found what was working and what felt right. Um, the, the routines just helped me a lot. And particularly when it came to power, um, you know, at what point did it feel like it was going to be a special season? I mean, you hit three home runs in April and then kind of launched out from there, hitting seven the next month and sixth the month after that uh, in the Carolina League. Um, you know, what allowed you to to create the power that you did? Your 32 homers were tied for second most in the minor leagues this year. You know, how do you kind of explain what happened in that department? Yeah, I would say um, I started off a little bit slower at the beginning of the year. Um, my timing was good on the fastball, but I was swinging and missing at a lot of breaking balls, and um, I, I just didn't have that, that click or whatever it was that was allowing me to make solid contact on off-speed pitches, but... Um, I had that three home run game um, against Potomac and for whatever reason, there was something that happened in that game that something clicked and it just allowed me to recognize fastballs and breaking balls. And I was putting equally as, as powerful swings on both. And um, kind of talk about what's different about you now as, as a pro hitter than what you were as a college hitter. I mean, I know you had pretty good last year with Jacksonville that allowed you to be a third round pick, but uh, you know, being a third round pick, lots of teams, everybody got at least one look at you, if not more coming into the draft. And then I think after the season you put up this year, any team would love to have you. Any system would love to have you. Uh, you know, what type of different player are you now as a pro than you were in college? I mean, if you, if you go back and look at the numbers, they were, basically identical to my my junior season I had as well so I think my biggest jump was from my sophomore year to my junior year um that and and once again it was just the ability to to hit off speed pitches better than I was doing before I've always been able to hit a fastball but when I started tapping into that my junior year that that really allowed me to take my game to another level and um, since I've gotten drafted and, and gotten into pro ball, I've taken a lot of pride in my defense and my base running and all those other small things that you can work on on a daily basis. And since I'm getting more reps now and playing every single day, I feel like those small parts of my game have progressed even more. And um, it's just helping me become a better player every single day. 
Austin, let's talk defensive work. Um, I know the vast majority of publications looking at the, the 2016 draft for the O's said you were the, the best athlete, maybe the best pure hitter, the best offensive player. And so often we get sucked into just talking about offensive work. But defensively, you hold down center field for the vast majority of your time. And Frederick, you get some time in the corners in Bowie, you get some time in the corners in the big leagues. What was the adaptation like at the professional level to being a, a strong defensive outfielder and being able to play kind of all around wherever you're needed in a defensive setup yeah I would say the biggest part is I mean most days we're going to take batting practice on the field and I mean you can take as many fly balls off a fungo or a machine as you want but it's just not the same as the spin of the ball how fast it comes off a bat so um, just getting live reads and BP every single day at different positions playing at different depths trying to get reads off different types of hitters power hitters uh, righties lefties at, at each position um, so just going through that process every single day was something that I took a lot of pride in and I really wanted to get better and I wanted to get better at all positions. So, um, when the time came and I needed to play somewhere, I'd be prepared for it. One of the things I've heard guys talk about getting into pro ball, especially guys who come from smaller colleges or come from the high school level, is that playing in different stadiums with different crowd backdrops can play uh, a factor as you try to get adjusted to playing the outfield at the professional level. Because like you said, you can take as many fly balls and BP and all that, but you're still taking them against a solid color backdrop of empty seats. When fans fill in, it changes up that vision entirely. Did that play a factor at all when you first kind of get in you play in front of some big crowds and you're sort of having to adjust to that all across these different levels where you go yeah I mean for sure it's as much as your mind and your body has to adjust to things so do your eyes you know um, the lights are a lot higher so it's in one aspect it's easier to see the fly balls because when they go up the twilight time of the night you know the third fourth inning when in most minor league stadiums there's going to be a 15 to 20 minute span where everyone's going to struggle to see a fly ball in the outfield. That doesn't, you don't really have that, that twilight time as much anymore in any of these big league parks because the lights are so high and they're so, they're so good. But like you were saying, there's that, that third deck that, I mean, most guys, unless you played at a really big time school and, and maybe played in the college world series or something like that, where there were a ton of fans, you've never experienced it before. So it's definitely something that, um, is different at first, but um, your eyes adjust quick, and, and you kind of learn how to how to just pick up the ball a little better than you were when you first got out there. And Austin, I, I kind of want to revisit uh, your time in the majors. Just starting off with when you found out you were making the jump. I know you said earlier you weren't expecting at all for it to come this quickly. Your major league debut, uh, you know, your season wraps in the Eastern League. You hit a home run. I think was your last hit. Uh, for Bo- Bowie at Richmond, probably think you're ending your year on a high like that. And then you're going up to, to Baltimore the next day, um, or at least the transaction went through the next day on the September 5th. What was that discussion like? How did you find out you were going to be making the jump this quick? Yeah, so, um, you know, we finished that game and we were going to the playoffs. So we had practice the next day um, on our off day. And then we were going to play our first playoff game the following day. So I had practice at 12. I got done. I came back to, to my apartment. I was sitting there with my girlfriend, and we were looking up movie times. We were going to go to dinner and, and go see the new It movie, the clown movie that came out. <laughs> um, so we were going to go watch We were gonna go watch that, go see a scary movie. Um, so we're, 
we're kind of deciding on that, and it, I think it's three thirty, three forty-five in the afternoon or something. And um, I get a call on my phone. It was our our manager from Bowie, Gary Kendall, and he's like, "Hey, man, are you sitting down?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah. What's going on?" He's like, "Well, you should stand up, pack up your stuff. You're going to Canada Yards tonight. You need to get there by six. Like, well, it's three forty-five. Let's get rolling. Uh, it was it was chaos, man. It was hectic trying to get there, going through traffic, didn't know where to park or anything. It was, it, it was crazy, but it was, um, it was awesome. The, the feeling of when he said that and just how it hit me so deep, it was, it was a great experience. From Bowie so, to Camden Yards, 45 minutes as of right now on, uh, on Google maps. And I would think like afternoon traffic, like how stressful is that a and B when you show up, if you don't know where you're going, do you just, like, drive up to a security guard and be like, hey, my name's Austin Hayes, I just got called up to the big leagues. Like, does anybody believe you? How does that even work? Yeah, that's what was funny because – so I started calling some of the other guys. I'm like, hey, can you send me the address to the player's parking lot? I mean, I wouldn't know where to go to find it. And that's where our entrance is, and I have all my stuff. So I drove to Bowie, packed up all my equipment. Like, my sliders and my socks are dirty from practice earlier that day. They haven't gotten washed yet. So I'm carrying a bag with my dirty stuff, my bag with my equipment. And so I got the address to that. But I, I mean, I wasn't supposed to tell anybody until I had, you know, signed my papers making me active. And someone, I think one of the reporters or something leaked it and it got on Twitter. So my friends, family, everyone found out. I, I told my mom, but um, like some of my closer friends and they were all calling me, blowing up my phone, and I'm trying to look at my GPS to see where I'm going. So I'm hitting exit and decline, trying to get the screen off. My phone's about to turn off because everyone's blowing it up. It was, it, it was crazy, man. It was, it was, it was chaos, but it was awesome. That's a good lesson, I think, for everybody. If your friend ever gets called up, just hold off on yeah, the congratulations. Yeah, wait, wait. That's like a good there's, argument for like, a, yeah. It's a good argument for like the Tom Tom people. Mix in a text. Yeah, you know, mix in a text or something every couple days or, you know, just wait wait a, wait a little bit for him. He's got all kinds of stuff going on, too. That's a good argument for the people who used to make, like, the dashboard-mounted GPS. Like, you don't have to worry about that with those. They should start using that. Just mark it directly to guys getting called to the big That's leagues. what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, the old, the old Tom-Tom. Exactly. So, you, so you, you get lick it, stick it to the, to the dash. <laughs> So you get called up the fifth, and then your first game, the first at-bat you take is on the seventh, and it didn't seem like you were getting that much playing time early on. You only had, like, three games played, and at that it was, you know, pinch hit duty or coming in late in the games. Um, You know, how did you kind of handle that, you know, showing up, being told you were a major leaguer, but getting very sporadic playing time, at least very early on? Um, I was basically just trying to keep the same mindset as if I was playing, if I was in the lineup. Um, just focus on what the outfitters were doing, what each hitter was doing in there at bat. So if I did get in the game, I would know where to play uh, if that person was up. And, um, you know, I was looking at the scouting reports, looking at who might come in the game, who's warming up in the pen. If I do get a possible at bat, I kind of understand what he might try to do to me or what kind of pitches he has. So um, I just kind of tried to have a, a manager's mindset, I guess you would say. Um, kind of just running through scenarios in my head so that I'd be prepared for anything. And, and did you have any conversation with Buck Showalter about that? Uh, just about like, you know, hey, what should I be doing right now? Or him telling you, listen, this is my plan for you right now. Um, you know, were, was there any conversation on what your role was going to be at least early on? 
Uh, no, no, not necessarily. You know, I was welcomed in by everyone, um, all the staff and all the players. And um, I wasn't sure what my role was going to be. I just knew I was there and I was going to be wearing a jersey. Um, and, so, you know, I wasn't playing the first couple of days. And they had told me in, you know, the eighth inning, ninth inning in a couple of games, hey, you know, if so-and-so gets on, you're going to run for him. So I'd gotten the gist, like, okay, well, I'll make sure I'm ready to run for somebody or ready to pinch it late in the game if there's a matchup thing that's going on. And, and you know, I got the opportunity for a start, and then I, I got another one a couple of days later. So when I was showing up to the park every day, I just – I had the mindset that I was going to start that day just so that I was locked in from the get-go. Awesome. Let's go back so we to – We didn't have any – Oh, go ahead. We didn't necessarily have any talks like, this, this is what you're going to be doing while you're here – or anything like that. Um, nothing like that. Let's go back to, uh, you know, the a moment that you'll never forget, your family's never going to forget, and uh, it's the thing that everybody dreams about, but you get on September 16th, uh, a game that doesn't go the way for you guys that you would have liked it to have gone. It's a loss in New York, but you're at Yankee Stadium, and you crank your first major league home run. It comes in the ninth inning against Chase and Shreve. Um, you know, it's a, a late-season game, but there are 40,000 people there that night and a, a dream moment is a dream moment. I mean, take us through just what that felt like. It doesn't come at home. It doesn't come in a win, but it's still that moment in your life. What, what do you remember about that? Um, I know that I, I had a few at bats by that point and I hadn't gotten any hits up to that point. So I got the start and I got to hit my first at bat and I just felt like I could take a breath. Oof. Like all the, all the little, like voices you had going in your head and like, Oh, you know, you haven't gotten a hit yet. This and that, that all went away. And then I just went to focusing on the game, focusing on my at bat. And, you know, then I got that last at bat. I think I was like one for three up till that point. Um, and he threw a first pitch, uh, change up or splitter, something soft, it bounced one of town. I was like, all right, just get some, do something up, get something good to hit. And when I hit it, I was like, Oh man, I hit that pretty good. But, I know it was to right center, so I was running hard out of the box watching it, and I saw a judge, um, you know, stop running right when he got to the track, and I watched it go over, and it was – it felt the same, honestly, jogging around the bases, but after the game when I was thinking about it, it was it was kind of crazy to believe it. If I'm, it, it actually happened. <laughs> so so uh, uh, do you actually remember going around the bases? I, I, I think, like, Reese Hoskins may have said, you know, I completely blanked. Uh, on running you know that just seems like such a natural thing you're just running around the bases but that's your first time ever getting to do that did you make sure to remember that moment yeah I mean I can remember going around the base I think the thing that's always going to stick with me about that moment was um, of all of the people that could have been on base like or any of the organizations I could have been with JJ Hardy was um, he was ahead of me on base when when I hit it so um, when I touched home plate, the first person that was right there for me to give a high five to was JJ Hardy and someone that I've grown up watching for the longest time. And he's done a lot for the world's organization. The guy, I mean, he's been one of the best for, for a while now. So for me to have that acknowledgement from him for, for my first home run in Yankee stadium, that, I mean, that's a moment I'll never forget touching home plate and just giving knuckles to, to him, you know? And, uh, 
we don't get a chance because this is obviously a minor league podcast. We don't get the chance to talk to guys who have been in the majors yet. Uh, usually by the time they get there, they're, they're no longer prospects by the end. Um, so I wanted to ask somebody this, that it's at least played major league baseball this year. Um, you know, one of the stories of the year was obviously powers up across the board. Uh, part of the reason behind that might be the ball is slightly different. Um, you know, you're not a pitcher, you're not handling the ball as much and you don't know how it necessarily the inner, the inner workings of it are. Um, but how different is it to handle a ball, to hit a ball at the major league level as compared to the minors this year? You know, what were your experiences playing with two different sets of balls uh, in 2017? Um, I feel like the ball here is harder and the laces are smaller. So I can throw it. I feel like I can throw it harder and farther from the outfield. I can get more backspin on it. Um, and then as far as hitting goes, I mean, I'm pretty sure the ball is definitely going farther in batting practice than it was when I was in the minor leagues. I mean, even, even the batting practice balls are, are harder and, and better. But, so is that yeah, something you guys talk about? Harder, I would say I, I wouldn't. No, nah, it's nothing we talk about. Um, yeah. it's, it's, not a, it's just not a huge difference, but you can notice a difference. Fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, we'll leave you on this one. Uh, you know, you're now preparing for the offseason. Uh, this one's obviously going to be different than last year, knowing you are preparing for an offseason in which you could be competing for a big league job immediately from spring training. Um, you know, how does just this moment right now, this after season moment feel? And, uh, you know, how different do you expect this offseason to be in terms of how you're going to train and how you're going to kind of work towards, you know, the day when you have to report to spring training in February. Yeah. Um, I mean, it feels great to be home and just enjoy my family's company. That was my first, um, full season. So that, I mean, that's the longest I've ever gone without seeing a lot of my family and friends. So it, it's great to be home with them right now. Um, I'm, I'm going to enjoy it for a couple of weeks and let my body recover. But as far as the training itself goes, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to change much. What I did last off season worked very well for me. My body held up well. I felt strong. I felt healthy. Um, and I mean, I really got after it. I, I really worked hard. So I don't feel like I can work any harder than I did last off season. But if I can match what I did, I think I'll be perfectly prepared and I'll be ready for, for what spring training brings. He is Austin Hayes, the second-ranked prospect in the Baltimore Orioles organization, number 88 overall in MLB.com, MLB Pipeline's rankings of the top 100 prospects out of the 2017 season. And, Austin, congratulations on all the success this year, and thanks a ton for uh, for joining us, and best of luck over the offseason and into 2018, man. We'll be watching. Yeah, thanks again. Thank you guys for having me. No Benjamin Hill this week, but we do have a couple of updates on uh, affiliations and ballparks and things. And Sam, bring us up to speed. Yeah, so the one that's really interesting, uh, you know, just to update everybody on that one, uh, the Greenville Astros, you know, the Astros who had, had announced they were not going to uh, be at Greenville next year. Um, so that slot is actually now going to be filled by the Reds, uh, which is interesting for a, a number of different reasons. Obviously, that's great that a team will be moving in there. Uh, you heard Ben say that that's a it's a good f facility uh, by Appalachian League's standards, uh, Appalachian League standards, whichever way you want to go on that one. <laughs> um, but the Reds they have an AZL affiliate. It's 
they have a rookie level affiliate already in Billings in the Pioneer League. So now they have another rookie level affiliate uh, in in Greenville, and they don't have a Class A short season affiliate. Which you know, is there really that much of a difference between rookie level and Class A short season? There might be, there might not be, whatever. Um, but that's interesting. We thought you know it might go to a team that doesn't have a rookie level affiliate, a team that you know something like the Red Sox, who you know you go from the Gulf Coast League straight to Class A short season. Lowell, uh, in, in, in essence, it, it ends up going to Cincinnati. So that that's good. That's nice that we can kind of close that loop early on in the offseason, what's barely the offseason for us. Also, a, a small bit of news in that the Carolina Mudcats have officially been purchased by the Milwaukee Brewers, their parent affiliate. Um, you know, that's interesting in terms of now the parent club is running operations there. Um, you know, Ben can probably touch on more on that and we can get on that with him, you know, when he's back on the show next week, uh, exactly what that means from the top down. Um, but that probably means that, you know, the Brewers will be with the Carolina Mudcats, uh, for, for the long term. This is not necessarily a, uh, short term player development contract. They probably like what's going on there, uh, in the Carolina league. They used to be, you know, with Brevard County who no longer exists. Uh, you know, now they moved up to Carolina with the Mudcats. Now they purchased the team. Um, it must be nice from a player development standpoint to know that you are running operations there. Everything is under your control. You don't have to worry about owners running, you know, silly events or anything like that or asking too much of the players or not putting together good facilities. Everything's under your control. So uh, that'll be good for Brewers prospects probably. It'll be good for the system uh, to have some, some stability in terms of uh, their affiliate. Um, so those are two newsy business items uh, to kind of touch on uh, this week. And obviously lots more will come this offseason uh, in terms of rebrands and all that kind of stuff. But this is a good uh, first taste here in our first couple weeks of the offseason. So that will do it for this week's edition of the show before the show. You can find Austin Hayes on Twitter. He is at the Austin Hayes with three S's at the end of Hayes. Not how it's actually spelled, in case you're wondering. Uh, you can find Austin there. And uh, you can find Sam Dykstra on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. I am a Tyler Mon, And that will wrap this one up. We'll talk to you guys next week. Enjoy the start to the Major League Baseball postseason. See you next week. Yeah.